Chapter Thirteen of Being a Boy by Charles Dudley Warner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mark Penfold. Chapter Thirteen, John's First Party. It turned out that John did not go after all to Cynthia Rudd's party, having broken through the ice on the river when he was skating that day, and as the boy who pulled him out said, "Come within an inch of his life." but he took care not to tumble into anything that should keep him from the next party, which was given with due formality, by Melinda Mayhew. John had been many a time to the house of Deacon Mayhew, and never with any hesitation, even if he knew that both the deacon's daughters, Melinda and Sophronia, were at home. The only fear he had felt was of the deacon's big dog, who always surlily watched him as he came up the tan-bark walk and made a rush at him if he showed the least sign of wavering but upon the night of the party his courage vanished, and he thought he would rather face all the dogs in town than knock at the front door. The parlor was lighted up, and as John stood on the broad flagging before the front door by the lilac bush, he could hear the sound of voices, girls' voices, which set his heart in a flutter. He could face the whole district school of girls without flinching. He didn't mind them in the meeting-house in their Sunday best, but he began to be conscious that now he was passing to a new sphere, where the girls are supreme and superior, and he began to feel for the first time that he was an awkward boy. The girl takes to society as naturally as a duckling does to the placid pond, but with a semblance of shy timidity. The boy plunges in with a great splash and hides his shy awkwardness in noise and commotion. When John entered, the company had nearly all come. He knew them every one, and yet there was something about them strange and unfamiliar. They were all a little afraid of each other, as people are apt to be when they are well dressed and met together for social purposes in the country. To be at a real party was a novel thing for most of them, and put a constraint upon them which they could not at once overcome. Perhaps it was because they were in the awful parlor, that carpeted room of haircloth furniture which was so seldom opened. Upon the wall hung two certificates framed in black one certifying that by the payment of fifty dollars deacon mayhew was a life member of the american tract society and the other that by a like outlay of bread cast upon the waters his wife was a life member of the a b c f m a portion of the alphabet which has an awful significance to all new england childhood these certificates are a sort of receipt in full for charity and are a constant and consoling reminder to the farmer that he has discharged his religious duties there was a fire on the broad hearth, and that, with the tallow candles on the mantelpiece, made quite an illumination in the room, and enabled the boys, who were mostly on one side of the room, to see the girls who were on the other quite plainly. How sweet and demure the girls looked, to be sure. Every boy was thinking if his hair was slick, and feeling the full embarrassment of his entrance into fashionable life. It was queer that these children, who were so free everywhere else, should be so constrained now and not know what to do with themselves. The shooting of a spark out upon the carpet was a great relief, and was accompanied by a deal of scrambling to throw it back into the fire, and caused much giggling. It was only gradually that the formality was at all broken, and the young people got together and found their tongues. John at length found himself with Cynthia Rudd, to his great delight and considerable embarrassment, for Cynthia, who was older than John, never looked so pretty. To his surprise he had nothing to say to her. They had always found plenty to talk about before, but now nothing that he could think of seemed worth saying at a party. "'It is a pleasant evening,' said John. 
"'It is quite so,' replied Cynthia. "'Did you come in a cutter?' asked John anxiously. "'No, I walked on the crust, and it was perfectly lovely walking,' said Cynthia in a burst of confidence. "'Was it slippery?' continued John. "'Not very.' John hoped it would be slippery, very, when he walked home with Cynthia, as he determined to do, but he did not dare to say so, and the conversation ran aground again. John thought about his dog and his sled and his yoke of steers, but he didn't see any way to bring them into conversation. Had she read the Swiss Family Robinson? Only a little ways. John said it was splendid, and he would lend it to her, for which she thanked him, and said with such a sweet expression, she should be so glad to have it from him that was encouraging. And then John asked Cynthia if she had seen Sally Hawks since the husking at their house, when Sally found so many red ears, and didn't she think she was a real pretty girl? Yes, she was right pretty, and Cynthia guessed that Sally knew it pretty well. But did John like the color of her eyes? No, John didn't like the color of her eyes exactly. Her mouth would be well enough if she didn't laugh so much and show her teeth. John said her mouth was her worst feature. "'Oh, no,' said Cynthia warmly. "'Her mouth is better than her nose.' John didn't know, but it was better than her nose, and he should like her looks better if her hair wasn't so dreadful black. But Cynthia, who could afford to be generous now, said she liked black hair, and she wished hers was dark, whereupon John protested that he liked light hair, auburn hair, of all things. And Cynthia said that Sally was a dear good girl, and she didn't believe one word of the story that she only really found one red ear at the husking that night, and hid that and kept pulling it out as if it were a new one. And so the conversation, once started, went on as briskly as possible about the pairing bee and the spelling school and the new singing master who was coming, and how Jack Thompson had gone to Northampton to be a clerk in a store, and how Elvira Reddington, in the geography class at school, was asked what was the capital of Massachusetts, and had answered, Northampton, and all the school laughed. John enjoyed the conversation amazingly, and he half wished that he and Cynthia were the whole of the party. But the party had meantime got into operation, and the formality was broken up when the boys and girls had ventured out of the parlor into the more comfortable living room, with its easy chairs and everyday things, and even gone so far as to penetrate the kitchen in their frolic. As soon as they forgot they were a party, they began to enjoy themselves. But the real pleasure only began with the games. The party was nothing without the games, and indeed it was made for the games. Very likely it was one of the timid girls who proposed to play something, and when the ice was once broken, the whole company went into the business enthusiastically. There was no dancing. We should hope not. Not in the deacon's house, not with the deacon's daughters, nor anywhere in this good puritanic society. Dancing was a sin in itself, and no one could tell what it would lead to. But there was no reason why the boys and girls shouldn't come together and kiss each other during a whole evening occasionally kissing was a sign of peace, and was not at all like taking hold of hands and skipping about to the scraping of a wicked fiddle. In the games there was a great deal of clasping hands, of going round in a circle, of passing under each other's elevated arms, of singing about my true love, and the end was kisses distributed with more or less partiality, according to the rules of the play. But thank heaven there was no fiddler, John liked it all, and was quite brave about paying all the forfeits imposed on him, even to the kissing all the girls in the room. But he thought he could have amended that by kissing a few of them a good many times instead of kissing them all once. But John was destined to have a damper put upon his enjoyment. 
they were playing a most fascinating game in which they all stand in a circle and sing a philandering song except one who is in the centre of the ring and holds a cushion at a certain word in the song the one in the centre throws the cushion at the feet of someone in the ring indicating thereby the choice of a mate and then the two sweetly kneel upon the cushion like two meek angels and and so forth then the chosen one takes the cushion and the delightful play goes on it is very easy as it will be seen to learn how to play it cynthia was holding the cushion and at the fatal word she threw it down not before john but in front of ephraim leggett and they two kneeled and so forth john was astounded he had never conceived of such perfidy in the female heart he felt like wiping ephraim off the face of the earth only ephraim was older and bigger than he when it came his turn at length thanks to a plain little girl for whose admiration he didn't care a straw he threw the cushion down before melinda mayhew with all the devotion he could muster and a dagger look at cynthia and cynthia's perfidious smile only enraged him the more john felt wronged and worked himself up to pass a wretched evening when supper came he never went near cynthia and busied himself in carrying different kinds of pie and cake and red apples and cider to the girls he liked the least he shunned Cynthia, and when he was accidentally near her, and she asked him if he would get her a glass of cider, he rudely told her, like a goose as he was, that she had better ask Ephraim. That seemed to him very smart, but he got more and more miserable and began to feel that he was making himself ridiculous. Girls have a great deal more good sense in such matters than boys. Cynthia went to John at length and asked him simply what the matter was. John blushed and said that nothing was the matter cynthia said that it wouldn't do for two people always to be together at a party and so they made up and john obtained permission to see cynthia home it was after half-past nine when the great festivities at the deacons broke up and john walked home with cynthia over the shining crust and under the stars it was mostly a silent walk for this was also an occasion when it is difficult to find anything fit to say and John was thinking all the way how he should bid Cynthia good-night, whether it would do and whether it wouldn't do, this not being a game and no forfeits attaching to it. When they reached the gate, there was an awkward little pause. John said the stars were uncommonly bright. Cynthia did not deny it, but waited a minute and then turned abruptly away with, "'Good-night, John.' "'Good-night, Cynthia.' And the party was over, and Cynthia was gone and John went home in a kind of dissatisfaction with himself. It was long before he could go to sleep for thinking of the new world open to him, and imagining how he would act under a hundred different circumstances, and what he would say and what Cynthia would say. But a dream at length came and led him away to a great city and a brilliant house, and while he was there he heard a loud rapping on the underfloor and saw that it was daylight. End of chapter 13 Recording by Mark Penfold